Scripture reading this evening will be from Second Peter three ten through thirteen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct of godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the coming of the day and God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise promise we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteous dwells. evening. I hope that you will take out your Bibles and be turning along with me. Second Peter chapter 3 is where we will be studying. Second Peter the third chapter this evening is where we will be looking at. Is Okay, uh, we'll get it going, maybe. In Second Peter chapter 3, we will be studying that context here in just a few moments. I want us to think, though, as we just about some of the things pertaining to discussions about the end times. That is something that can generate a lot of discussion and a lot of interest with our friends and our neighbors. Things about what will happen when the day of the Lord comes. And it is something that is an exciting and an exhilarating study from the Word of God. I think everyone has some kind of interest in learning about what will happen when Christ returns? What sort of events will take place? Will there be any signs or anything that indicates that it's about to happen and it's imminence? Or will it just happen? And there's all sorts of things that we could go and talk about and study. But what we learn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear is that whenever we talk about the things pertaining to the day of the Lord. He says that it should fill us with hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. And that hope, I think, is supposed to give us comfort, as you can see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, when Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And this is not supposed to be something that should lead us to fear. It should not be something that leads us to not uh, have confidence in But any discussion should pertain to hope. It should give us a a great deal of strength and encouragement that we should look forward to the day of the Lord. And there may be all sorts of questions that we could get into and that even among brethren, there might be subtle distinctions and subtle disagreements about some things pertaining to the Hadean realm or heaven and hell. Those have been topics among the brethren that have been discussed in theologians or various denominations for years, and it will continue to happen that way. And things pertaining to the second coming of Christ have actually been major points of contention among denominational uh, groups uh, like Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are key doctrines 
that have distinguished them from among other various groups and denominations. So whether, whether we think about things pertaining to the end and where we might fall on some things, a study of this is important. And it is something that is necessary. And we have seen debates and we've probably in, in heard people uh, take various issues, premillennialism, postmillennialism, you don't hear about that as much anymore, preterism, amillennialism, whatever ism you want to have uh, at the end of a word that you can have it discussed in these matters. And whenever you hear all those words, and you may not be familiar with any of those words, and that can generate some confusion, no doubt. And it can leave people without feeling any kind of hope or comfort or encouragement. And so we have to be very careful when we talk about these things. We need to be sure that we're presenting it from the right angle and that we address these uh, from the Scriptures. Historically, churches of Christ have been kind of all over the map, actually, when it comes to where they are on matters pertaining to the end. Over the past 100 years or so, we've probably been firmly in the amillennialism camp. That is, we don't believe that there's going to be a literal thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. But before that, there are a lot of brethren that actually held to premillennial ideas about the thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth, in Jerusalem, on the throne of David, and those kinds of things. And before that, in the mid-1800s, it was a pretty widely popular uh, among churches of Christ and Alexander Campbell, for instance, or David Lipscomb to believe in post-millennialism. And that is that we need to usher in the millennial, uh, the millennium and that we are needing to, as the church, we need to do everything to bring in this era of peace and prosperity that it has not yet happened, but that is integral for us to bring in. And so as we have we can see and we could expect that because just historically speaking among churches of Christ of all stripes and all uh, distinctions there has been some widespread disagreement and there's not just been a one uh, one position that people have held to but today there is widespread agreement for the most part, among churches of Christ, pertaining to things to the end. Jesus will return. We will be raised from the dead. The world will be destroyed by fire. We will be judged. We will go to heaven while unbelievers will be judged and go to hell for eternity. And all of those things could still be debated by brethren and even countered or questioned. But what I have noticed among people, especially my age... And maybe that's something that has drawn me to want to preach on this and expose it. But there are, and there are friends of mine that have held to what we're going to be talking about tonight. And that is something that we would call new creation theology or new heavens and new earth theology. And I believe this is a very dangerous doctrine especially as hopefully by the end of our study we will see because of the consequences that come 
from this teaching. But this teaching is something that is growing in popularity among, as I said, people about my age, preachers in non-institutional churches of Christ are holding to this position and they're teaching it. They're writing on it. They are holding this up and they're placing it on their church websites. And that is something that I think we need to recognize that could be problematic for in the future. But this might go by a couple of different names. New Heavens, New Earth Theology, or as we will probably see on on the charts, uh, abbreviated NHNE, just for short, or New Creation Theology, abbreviated NCT. I prefer to not call it that, per se, if we're trying to really boil it down to what this is. What this is, is really a restored or a renewed earth view of eternity. That after... When after the return of Christ, you're not going to go to heaven, to a different place. In fact, you're going to remain firmly right here on the earth. The earth is just going to be uh, rebooted, if you will. If you are familiar with uh, having to reboot a computer, you might think of it as that. That you're restarting it from a clean slate. And so... I don't want to misrepresent this view. I'm sure this is something that is probably different to you. It's probably something that you have not really heard explained or or exposed or thought about. Uh, I I certainly don't take this position. I want to be very clear and upfront about it. I don't take this position. So I don't want to misrepresent anyone. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at quotes from people who do believe this, who have written on this. And I want to show you what they believe. I don't want to misrepresent anyone's position. And so I want to put some things up here that you can see for yourself. And if there are any quotes that you would like to have kind of original sources on to know that I'm not making this up, I'd be happy to share that with you. I'm not going to call anyone's name. I'm not going to put any church websites out there or anything like that uh, because I think that would just distract from the issue. Because I just want us to look at the issue and ask whether if this is right or whether it's wrong. And I believe this is something that is dangerous. I believe it is a false position. And it can certainly endanger someone's soul. But as any false doctrine that might be out there, It will contain elements of truth, and I don't want to ignore that. I want to try to be as fair as I can in our evaluation, our study tonight. This doctrine is no different. There are some things of truth that I do believe they get right. And I want to state that very clearly here at the outset of our study. That there are some things that uh, this perspective of eternity actually does get right, but it's their critique of the position that I hold that I think they do misrepresent. I think they misrepresent what I believe on some level, and I, I'm going to assume that's unintentional on their part. But because of some misrepresentations that they have accepted and that they say about what I would believe the Bible teaches, That has led them to some false conclusions. And I do believe that advocates for this position are right about some things such as the bodily resurrection. They 
are very clear that they believe in a bodily resurrection. I believe that as well. I believe the Apostle Paul teaches that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 very explicitly, that we will be raised from the dead. And I believe that they are very critical about a, accepting a platonic, and what I mean by that are the teachings of Plato and in ancient Greece and their philosophies, that there we have adopted some of those things very unintentionally. And that actually has hindered some understandings of what the Bible teaches. And so I want us to think about what this teaching really is, and, we'll, and then we'll make some comments about it to try to help us counter their position. But if we're going to introduce this, we have to understand what they're teaching. And especially if they believe that the earth is going to continue to exist, that the earth is not going to be destroyed, we need to understand that they have an elevated view and this importance of the material world and universe is highly elevated. And their view maintains that the world prior to the fall of man in Genesis 3, in its state of being very good, was the eternal design that God had planned. That God did indeed create the world and it was very good before sin brought its destructive nature into the world. Man did have fellowship with God in a very unique way in the earliest chapters in Genesis. And sin brought a curse upon the man and the woman and the creation felt the effects. There is no doubt. You read Genesis chapter 3 and verses 16 through 19. And if you're a note taker, I, I apologize at the beginning of this. We're probably going to have to go through a lot of these passages very quickly and so we won't have time to reference them. If you want to jot them down, I would highly encourage you uh, to do that, I will make these slides available for anyone that needs them or would like to uh, study this further in detail. But while they are, are right about that, that sin and the effects have touched everybody, man, woman, and the creation, there's nothing in the Bible that would imply that even the beautiful picture in Genesis 1-2 through was that that was the perfect, blissful state that God had always intended and designed for eternity. I think they go too far here. But I want you to see what they say. They say, go back and read Genesis 1-2. through God's creation was beautiful, harmonious, and abundant. God delighted in all that He had made, especially humankind, the pinnacle of His creation. Humanity was made to reflect God, being made in or as His image and as image bearers. Humanity was called to participate in God's work of ruling over the created world, all to the honor and glory of God. Endowed with this divine vocation and equipped with divinely given assistance, man and woman were to work in perfect harmony to grow both the garden through cultivation and humanity's presence in it through procreation. Allow your mind to be captivated by the rich bounty of the garden. Imagine the teeming trees, the fruitful fields, the pleasant plains, and the gentle waters. Imagine work that brings only fulfillment and never disappointment. Projects that never go awry. Imagine not so much the nakedness of the first man and woman, but what it represents. Freedom, vulnerability, unashamedness, harmony. Be taken in by the description of the garden. 
And then if you can, and this is really where our imaginations begin to be pressed beyond their limits, imagine what it would be like for God to come down and walk with you, talk with you, teach you about life, work, relationships, the world, Himself. This is the picture of what creation was in the beginning. Don't you long to go back there before selfishness and stagnation, suffering and separation? Before the theological, relational, anthropological, ethical, mortal, and ecological brokenness of Genesis 3? For the realist, some might say cynic, the world we live in seems too far gone. There is nothing we can do to get back there. And I'd say they're right to a large extent. Indeed, it seems like that door has been closed, never for us to open again. But what about God? Could He bring us back there? Would He bring us back there? I just want you to see just what we have been seeing in this quote so far is this supposition that God is intending to take us back to the garden. That that's His design for eternity. That's His supposition here. This writer. That He is arguing and contending that we see all this brokenness around us and that God is going to have to reboot Everything He's going to have to reset it and to take us all the way back to the beginning. And I would push back on that idea in the first place that where do we see that ever implied in Scripture? Where do we see that ever as God's intent and design that Genesis 1-2, through that was the perfect picture of how God intended for us to dwell for eternity. I don't think that can be upheld from the Word of God. This same author goes on, Secondly, we affirm and anticipate that just as we will have newly transformed bodies, and that's, he's got right there, so too will the, the world as we know it be transformed. The curse, chaos, and corruption will give way to light, life, and lavish abundance. Suddenly, texts like Isaiah 11, 6-9 or 65 25 don't seem as obscure or as in need of harmonization through spiritualization. We can appreciate and anticipate a new world without violence, predation, or scarcity. The lion and the lamb really will lie down together. Natural disasters will be a distant memory. We will inherit a world that doesn't ruin, run down, or run out. No thorns, nor thistles, tornadoes, or tsunamis. The beauty, glory, and majesty of God's good creation will be restored. You see that this is elevating the world as we know it. That everything that we see, that this creation, that it's much more important in God's scheme and plan of redemption and restoration. And it's not just about the salvation of His people, but it's also about the salvation of the world. And I don't know if that holds up in Scripture. He cited a few passages, but I think those could be explained through a different way and through a different lens. And so you have an elevated importance of the material world according to this view. But then there's also this argument that they contend that if God does not restore the world, so if you take what I would believe about things pertaining to the end, that we do go to heaven or we do go to hell. 
and that we will that this world will be destroyed. So if you hold something that like what I believe, then their point is that if God does not restore the world, then God's victory over sin, death, and Satan is only partial. That God must restore the world if He is going to have complete victory. Notice what this guy says. He says, but if we begin at the beginning, we remember that when God created this world, it was good and indeed very good. So our starting point is not of brokenness, but of beauty. Of course, sin came into the picture and made a mess of everything. But we must get this order straight. This world and everything in it is not inherently bad, but it is now corrupted by sin. The escapist view of eternity, that's that's his knock at me there, just so you know. Not me personally, but the position I would hold. He calls it the escapist view. You're leaving this world. You're escaping from it. The escapist view of eternity, floating away from this world, leaving it and our corrupted bodies behind, and entering into some blissful, disembodied, immaterial state, and that's not what I believe, is a line bought from the culture, not the Bible. In fact, it sends an implicit message that should be anathema to us as Christians. That message is this. God loses Satan, sin, and suffering when death gets the final word. At the very least, it is gridlock where both parties decide to stop fighting and retreat. It is the divine version of taking my toys and going home. Or as we spoke about yesterday, it'd be like sitting down for a rousing game of Monopoly, getting frustrated, flipping the board, and then having the audacity to declare victory. You see, if God is going to truly win, as Genesis 3.15 suggests, he, just, he can't just concede to the brokenness of this world, pack up his toys and go home. The escapist view of eternity is unchristian and unbiblical. Let's think about this further. You see that they're contending that God must act in this way. He must restore this world if it will be. If God is going to be victorious. It goes on, the Christian hope is nothing short of God's total and complete victory of sin and Satan. To that I would give an amen. If God is genuine in His promise of victory and powerful enough to attain it, dare we question or doubt this, then we should expect that everything that has been broken will be fixed. Everything that is wrong will be made right. This includes, yes, our relationship with God, yes, our proclivity to sin, yes, our status and role as divine image bearers, yes, our relationships and abilities, ability to relate to others, and yes, even our bodies and the world itself. We are waiting for, longing for, hoping for cosmic redemption. That is a redemption that is holistic and restorative. The story does not end with our spirits floating away to an eternal heavenly abode, escaping the horrors of this world and the brokenness of our bodies. No, the story ends with a new reality, a new creation with newly transformed bodies, a reality which the biblical writers refer to as the new heavens and new earth. As we will see, this is nothing less than a return to the garden scene we marveled at earlier. You see that redemption is not just about you. 
and your sins. It has to be the complete creation that God is going to restore everything and renew everything. And if He doesn't, then according to their view, then God's victory is only partial. It's like flipping over that Monopoly board game. And then if we really want to dive into their view, what we really see is that heaven and earth are combined. This picture, I hope you can see it clearly. As you make your way from left to right on the chart, you see that heaven and earth are overlapped a little bit. They argue that that was God's original design and intent. Because God was walking on the garden, in the garden with man. Man and woman could converse with God. So that implies that heaven and earth were combined in some way, according to their view. I don't take any of that literally. I think it is anthropomorphic language that you take language that would describe man and apply it to God. I think it's figurative language. But then after sin entered into the world, heaven and earth separated. And not only that, if you notice way over here on the right side of the chart, you have hell. But you notice in the middle on earth, you have that little black spot on the earth. That's hell. They believe that hell is on earth right now. And we'll come back to that. That's an important thing I think they need to be pushed on. And then when Jesus returns, that heaven and earth is going to be collapsed into one, the new heavens and new earth, and then they have hell off to the side. That's important. You will see this chart again. But this just shows that they are making some pure assumptions. They are reading figurative language in a way that they interpret literally. They speak of hell on earth. And hell on earth, that may be a phrase that sometimes we use to describe the brokenness and the immorality that we see, but that is... Again, it's highly figurative type of language. It's subjective. It's metaphorical. It's a description that is not supposed to be taken literally. But notice what this author says. He says, the second view, the renewed earth perspective, that is what we're looking at tonight, also says that this world was created good as the dwelling place of people. Earth parallels heaven, the dwelling place of God. And at the beginning, these two realms overlapped. God was able to dwell with people and walked in the garden with them. But we sinned. The earth became tainted. Our close relationship with God was destroyed. Our sin separates us from God, forcing the close union of heaven and earth to be driven apart. Things are bad and broken, and we lost, and we are lost in sin. And more than that, our accumulated sin multiplies and continues to defile the earth. There is a sense in which we have created hell on earth with our cumulative 
rebellion against God. The good news is that God is not content to leave things this way. Jesus came to reconcile all of creation to Himself, including humanity, and to specifically confront the problem of sin through His death and resurrection. Jesus has brought about a new order of things, or as Paul says, new creation. One day Jesus will return and sin, Satan, and death will be fully defeated. The entire cosmos will be made over into a new heaven and new earth. A unified whole. And God will dwell with His people forever while those who reject Him will be separated from Him forever. You see that He was expanding on everything that that chart and that picture described. So heaven and earth, according to this view, are combined and collapsed into one. And then I think they just critique pictures of heaven very unfairly. They would describe what I believe many of us would probably believe as the escapist view of eternity. And notice what one author says, one prevalent view of eternity is dwelling with God in heaven in some disembodied state, attending an eternal worship service. Perhaps we envision spirits floating on the clouds, playing spiritual harps, whatever that means, This is all well and good, and I love singing praises to God as much as anyone, but it is not quite the picture painted in the Bible of our final hope. Actually, it is quite literally worlds apart from what the Bible envisions. And here's what another author said. The first view, which I call the spiritual heaven perspective, that's what I would believe, says that we live in a world that was created good, but became tainted after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Things are bad and broken and we are lost in our sin. The good news is that Jesus came to die for our sin and save us so that when we die, we can forever leave this broken world which is bound for fiery destruction and enjoy a spiritual existence with God forever in heaven. The people that reject God will spend eternity in hell. And something I believe that is very problematic, as we have already looked at a little bit tonight, is that they take figurative passages and they try to apply them literally. One author, we're not going to put this quote up here, but he turns to Revelation chapter 14 with the picture of the 144,000. And he says that on this restored earth, we're going to join the 144,000. I just can't help but wonder... Is that Are you taking the Jehovah's Witness position that only 144,000 people are saved? Because you seem to be taking all these figurative passages, poetic passages of Scripture, pro- prophetic passages of Scripture, and you want to apply them literally. And they abandon the most basic rule of biblical hermeneutics, and that is that you take the most straightforward reading and understanding of a passage. Unless that just can't be true. Unless that would lead you to an absurdity. But notice in 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, the Bible is very clear. And that what I hope you have seen is that some of what they believe is, they would probably describe it as very theological, but it's very confusing. And the Bible presents just perfect clarity on what's going to happen. You can read it and you don't even need me to explain it to you. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 10, "...but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed." 
with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That Peter makes it very clear this world is going to be burned up. The elements, the most basic things that hold this material universe together, that word elements is the ABCs. It's like the building blocks. It's the cells. It's the periodic table. It's all the elements that hold everything together of this material world. It's going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. Peter says. And there is a textual variant that they will point to at the end of verse 10. If you are using a King James or New King James or a New American Standard, verse 10 ends that the earth and its works will be burned up. There is a textual variant there that some translations recognize. And it's from this Greek word, Eurith. And it means to be found, discovered, or laid bare. And so what they say is that the, the world is just going to be burned up so that it can just be restored and renewed. It's going to be laid bare so that way it can just be reborn. And that the world is not really going to be burned up. That's what they would argue. And then in any fire that comes on the earth, it's just going to be to restore it, to renew it. What Peter says is very clear in verse 7 that the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In verse 10, he also says, no matter what about this textual variant that may be in the text or not, he says that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. In verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. And even if they are right about that textual variant that it should be translated as the world will be exposed or laid bare or something like that, Peter's point is very clear that the world is going to be destroyed. And I would ask if the world is going to be destroyed and laid bare, for what purpose? Not to be restored. It's going to be destroyed. Peter is very clear in this. And that he harmonizes exactly with everything else that the Bible presents. We're going to move on. The Bible is very explicit. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 8 after the flood, in Genesis chapter 8, notice here, after Noah and his family come off the ark, in Genesis chapter 8 and in verse 22, after Noah built an altar and began to worship God, 
He says in verse 22, while the, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And aren't we ready for some wintertime type of temperatures? But notice there, he says, while the earth remains. That implies that the earth is not going to be here at some point. In Psalm 102, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 102, this is a passage that is quoted by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1. But in Psalm 102 and in verse 25, this says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like a clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. I want you to see the contrast here. He's saying that God is eternal. God will never come to an end. But what does he compare that to? The earth. (laughs) And the contrast for it to make any kind of sense at all means that the earth is going to be destroyed and that it will come to an end. That's the same thing that Jesus compares His words to. In Matthew chapter 5, let's just look at Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Jesus is saying that My words, My teaching, that it endures forever because it's eternal truth. But the world is temporary and it will be destroyed. Now, a fundamental rule of Bible study is that we cannot ignore the plain meaning of a passage. And you always need to opt for the most straightforward explanation of a text of Scripture. And we should never appeal to highly figurative or more difficult passages of Scripture to explain away the easy, straightforward passages. In fact, you are supposed to do the opposite. You have to allow the easy, straightforward passages to explain any difficult passages of Scripture. And then you cannot ignore these contrasts that the psalmist uses to compare God to this world. God's enduring eternal nature with this world. This world is going to be destroyed. Jesus says, My words are faithful and true, but this world is going to be destroyed. If we try, if we undo this thing to say that the world is going to always last, then we undo what they are saying in the scriptures. And what Peter says is that we are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth. That phrase is used in the book of Isaiah, in 2 Peter, and the book of Revelation. And I would encourage you to go home and read those passages, those chapters, those contexts where you read about that phrase, the new heavens and new earth, and you will see, and this is something that they would disagree with me on, but you never see it applied literally in relation to the material universe. 
It is always used as a figure. To talk about in Isaiah the Messianic kingdom and the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. Or in the book of Revelation, it's used to describe the glorified church in heaven being around the throne of God. It's never used in relation to this material universe. That is not what Peter is suggesting. And what we see is that heaven is the realm where God dwells and where His throne is. And throughout the Scriptures, you have this phrase, in heaven. That Jesus taught His disciples that we have a reward in heaven. Or that faithful followers of Jesus have their names recorded in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. And Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5 that our hope is laid up in heaven. That prepositional phrase, in heaven, it is talking about a location, a place. And the phrase in heaven is speaking of a place, a location, or a sphere where we will enjoy, receive, and have the blessings that God has promised for eternity. A passage that I think is important for us to consider is the Gospel of John in John chapter 14 where Jesus says, In John chapter 14 and in verse 2, In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is very clear. I am going to a place that you are not going. But I will come back and I will bring you there. And that's when, in the context, just a few verses later, he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father but through me. And what I've seen some of these people who hold to this new creation theology advocate is that I'm missing part of the story, they would say. They would say, God is not a God who wants you to leave the earth. God is a God who comes down to the earth. They say, look at Jesus. God came, became flesh. But I would suggest to them they are missing the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Jesus ascended. He left the earth after He accomplished His mission. God is a God who ascends as well. And Paul is very clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that when Jesus returns, we will leave the earth. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you see this movement away from the earth. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, 
For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. I'm always suspicious of a teaching or a doctrine whenever they would read into a passage like this. And what many of them say is that Jesus comes back to the earth. I don't read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I don't think you can find it either. If you do, please let me know. They have an argument that we don't have time to explore tonight, but they do make a case. But I want to try to wrap this up. Sorry for going long tonight. I always blame the song leader on Sunday nights if they go if I go long. It's always the song leader's fault. Sunday morning I'll take the blame. How about that? But what what we see is there are some consequences. And these are some questions I have personally asked some friends that have started teaching and espousing this doctrine. What about the lost? Go ahead and be turning to Colossians 1. Well, if you want to, you can just jot it down. I'll I'll put this quote up here. I ask this question, what about the lost? Because... I think a question I need to rework it a little bit is, will there be anyone who is lost? Because they are very strong about this, that if victory for God has to be complete and total, and if that includes people of all kinds, they would say categorically, not every single individual person, but categorically. But they would say... Victory for God must include people and the world. And my question is, if victory for God must be complete and total, then why does that not include every single person? How could God be victorious while some are lost and doomed to hell? And how does this not lead to universalism where everyone is saved? Because here's what they say, probably the most important, at the very least, one of the most powerful texts in the letter to the Colossians reinforces this point. Read Colossians 1, 15-20. Jesus is described as the one who is the founder and sustainer of creation and the one through whom the new creation will become a reality. Notice how many times the word all is used and what it is used in reference to. And these bold words that you will see, I didn't put them there. That was the author. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things in heaven or on earth, including even the highest and greatest things. What does this include? Or perhaps better to ask, what does this not include? God through Jesus created everything. And they're not done Notice after a few more alls and everythings in verses 17 through 19, Paul says that through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. 
Now, ordinarily, we might be prone to breeze by this and assume that by all, Paul actually only means the select few humans, relatively speaking, who choose to follow God and who we call the church. But that can't be quite right, can it? The pairing of the heavens and the earth, the use of the word all, both by itself and as it is used throughout this text, and the cosmic, physical, ecological hope of creation, Romans 8, militate against such a narrowed reading of all. You see what he's arguing? That all things means all things. And so that means everything. So my question is, how can anyone be lost? If all things means all things, why does it not mean all people? Why do you not accept universalism? Where all people get to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. And a second question. What happens to hell? If hell is on earth now, and that the redeemed remain on the earth, on a renewed earth, and accepting that they are assuming they don't accept universalism, what happens to unbelievers? I had a, a dear friend of mine that he argued, or he he was he was very honest and open with me that he's a little bit more accepting. He doesn't take universalism, but he's a little bit more accepting of annihilation. That this idea of eternal conscious punishment in hell, that, that's not a thing. Taking an annihilation view runs contrary to the plain reading of Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. If you want to believe in eternal life and not believe in eternal destruction, then you're not reading the same Bible that I am. I think these are some major consequences of their position. Because taking an annihilation view runs contrary to the plain reading of Scripture. I told you you'd see this chart again. You see hell is just kind of tucked off to the side like they don't really know what to do with it. Don't you? Because I think that's it. They don't really know what to do with it at this point. Many of our brethren don't really know. I believe this is a false doctrine because it contradicts the plain meaning of Scripture. If any position changes and distorts the plain reading of Scripture, I think I'm going to treat it as suspicious. And any view that believes that there are special meanings of words that should be viewed skeptically, I believe. And any view that abandons basic rules of hermeneutics will most definitely lead to false doctrines. When we want to take figurative passages such as poetry or metaphor or major thematic ideas and apply them literally, it's going to get us into trouble. When we ignore the straightforward reading of biblical passages for a more complicated thematic, or they'd say theological reading of Scripture, 
that is going to lead to trouble. And when we miss the genre of passages, they miss out on the broad picture that is being painted in Scripture. And if we take a view of eternity that leads us to deny eternal conscious punishment in hell, that forces us to deny the plain meaning of Scripture, I think we're in very dangerous waters. So no, the earth will not last forever. I believe the Bible is very clear. At this present, heavens and earth will be destroyed. And I appreciate your good attention and your patience with me tonight. I hope this has been of some benefit. Because this is something that people are believing and teaching. Even in conservative, non-institutional churches of Christ. We need to be ready. Tonight, if you're a Christian and you have the hope of eternity with God in heaven, to be at His throne, to worship and to praise Him and to serve Him for eternity, what better hope would you want? But if you're not a child of God, and you stand in danger of an eternity in hell, separated from God, away from the presence of the Lord, and thankfully, there is salvation that is promised for anyone who comes to believe in Jesus Christ and who is obedient to His Gospel. The world and this universe, it doesn't have free will, does it? You can't choose to serve God and to come to Him and to obey Him. But you can. Will you come to the Lord today? We want to encourage you tonight Come to the Lord. Repent and turn from your sins. If you need to become a Christian, be baptized in water. If you have already become a child of God, but you've not been living faithfully, we want to encourage you to come back to Him today. God is gracious and He is merciful to forgive you. If you, can, if you need to come forward tonight, we're here to help you and pray with you and help you render obedience to the Gospel. Whatever your need might be, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?